Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm Nicholas Lorimer, one of your hosts, and I'm joined today by Gabriel Krauser. The other host. The other one, yes. And, uh, well, we had this awkward little thing where we had to try and figure out what exactly we were going to talk about today. Mm. Um, as you can see, we have a very thorough process. Yeah. Um, Basically, it consisted of all morning fighting with each other yes. about global politics. About boxes. Yeah, about Box- boxes. Boxes and politics, which was, we, we'll, we'll touch on some of that in our first We consider it a highly productive time. Pretty much everyone in the office at some stage was attracted by the sounds of... Uh, <laughs> they would come in, including our colleague, Marius Ruret, who came in and went, oh, geez, and then proceeded to leave immediately. <laughs> some of them stuck around for long enough to maybe pick up a thing or two. We don't know. But we're going to share some of some of that and a few other things. Uh, France, if you're listening, we do actually do work as well. Yeah, we promise. Yeah. We promise. No, I mean, it's been a good week for work. Um, yeah, no, we've actually gotten things. One done. of the things we, Nicholas and I, were working together on actually was France's book. Yes, which is coming out next year. And it is going to be, well, not that we're biased or anything. But fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. The Rise or Fall of South Africa. Uh, provisional title. I think. Okay. Yes. We're we'll not going to plug it any more than that. <laughs> yes. Big, big. Yeah, it'll come. Yeah, yeah. It'll come out next year. Okay, cool. So, uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is, you know, just a little thing that we were kind of a little bit discussing, which is, is the liberal world order on the verge of total collapse? Yeah. Is the liberal world order over? Is the topic of debate, two debates actually. It's been going around all the sort of high and mighty circles for a little bit now. Yeah. Um, so part of part of the big thing is that Vladimir Putin said that it's over. Yes. And that then was a cover issue in The Economist and they had a special edition in reply to that. And, and I think when people start talking like that, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but it means that it might be true. Yeah. So it so has it's to be worth, taken seriously. Yeah. It's definitely worth thinking about. Two, two of the debates that I found... Um, particularly at once enlightening and frustrating, were held between Fareed Zakaria and Niall Ferguson. And so uh, Fareed Zakaria, uh, some listeners will know, as one of the faces of CNN. I think he's really the most credible person there. He's super smart. He's a PhD in history or political science or something. I listened to this Gabriel guy talking about people from the fake news media. Yeah, <laughs> well, now Fareed's really good. He's really smart. He's really well-intentioned. He grew up as a like, starving poor dude in India, f- fell for the American dream, moved to the States, got super educated, has written super smart books, has done super well for himself. And I think largely by spreading uh, good ideas. Um, and on the other side is Niall Ferguson, the Scot, <laughs> uh, who is famous for writing War of the World, a kind of really long history of the 20th century where he argues that World War One and World War Two are the same war, yes, yes, the yes. Chinese War, so that really the whole of the first half or two-thirds of the 21st century should be thought of as. Mm, an argument also, I think, uh, endorsed by Victor Davis Hanson, is an American yep. historian. So he and Victor Davis Hanson are sort of on the same page about some things. Uh, now Ferguson's uh, probably more famous, I suppose, the biggest feather in his cap is that he started writing a book. He's one of the things he started his career with was uh, started blossoming with was a history of the Rothschilds family because he's became very intimate with uh, some of the Rothschilds living family members and they disclosed to him various bits of information. So I haven't read it, but I'm going to ask for a spoiler. Are they actually lizard people? They are not. Okay. But so what's really interesting about 
um, his take on them is that because the Rothschilds in particular were held up as this iconic Jewish family yes. that has fiddled with, with the European of affairs, and power, and yes, uh, yes. they were really demonized by the Nazis. And so it created one of the strange things about demonization like that is that then it creates an echo chamber of silence around the family because if you say anything factual about them, at some level, you're going to say some things that fit into the Nazi narrative. Mm. I mean, they were a Jewish family. They were international. They were the first real international bankers of the modern era. Mm. Um, and they did change. They, they had huge influence on the outcomes of the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. What the Nazis said was that the, they were sort of hedging bets on who would win the war in ways that caused more people to die and that ultimately yeah, yeah, yeah. frustrated the interests of those people the that they were supposedly kind of aligned anti- with. The usual anti-Semitic sort yeah. of, yeah, yeah. So it turns out that if you really look at the data, you see that they were interfering, but that they, the opposite was true mm-hmm. because it was their ability. Soldiers, it turns out, um, at times of, m- of major international frictions, are quite worried about being paid in currencies <laughs> Uh, backed by central banks, backed by countries that might collapse. Yes. And so are very keen, much more keen on being paid in gold, yes. which is good wherever they are and is good no matter what the outcome of the war is. It was quite difficult for the Brits to pay the soldiers that they needed in order to defeat the French in um, domestic currency and it was even harder to do it in gold because their central reserves were logistically far away. I mean, literally there's a transport issue of getting the gold to the guys yeah. um, across the channel and across enemy territory and um, also timing is very important if you've got some soldiers that are looking at mutinying basically anyway so the Rothschilds have plugged the gap hugely putting their own finances at risk and at some stage losing substantial amounts of money in the end they kind of net one out of the war because they bet on the Brits winning and the Brits did win yeah but so he makes the case that they changed the sort of uh, they changed history basically by being really smart bankers, but in a good way. Um, and that set him up to think in, in quite deep ways about the connections between power and private finance and public uh, reserve banks and such like. And so he he dug into the build-up to 1789, the French Revolution. He found that there was this bust in Louisiana where basically a public corporation adventure, much like what Sassel has been doing in Louisiana, turned out to be much less valuable than everyone had thought it was. They all bought bonds in this public affair backed by some uh, Irish dude, I think he was, or British dude who was a terrible gambler and so had been chased out of the UK, had gone to Amsterdam, traded on the stock exchange there, turned out to be a terrible gambler, so went bankrupt, got chased out of there too, but then took kind of the stock exchange model to the bond, uh, to the exercise of sovereigns issuing national bonds, connected them to a particular project in Louisiana, and it looked like a great idea. Everyone was making lots of money and until they figured out it's a Ponzi scheme, and that collapses the French economy Have you ever heard this? on the eve of 1789. So he kind of says that this is the real cause of the French Revolution. Have you ever heard the story of how the Act of Union between England and Scotland happened, how the two crowns were united into one? I, I'm sure I have. Uh, it's, late it's, at night from it's, it's one a, Nicholas one Lorimer <laughs> over a whiskey. <laughs> it's one of those good stories um, because basically what happened is the Scottish crowns, so they were ruled by the same monarch. I think this was in the sort of uh, you know, late 1600s. They're ruled by the same monarch, but the, the governments are still in a certain sense divided from each other, mm-hmm. right? They're not a completely unified government. And the Scottish government decides that it's, you know, the, the bigger partner, England is getting all in on those colonies in North America 
and this is something they want a piece of as well. But North America's a bit crowded, and England's already there, and mm. you, know, you don't want to fight the they're French. They're already doing that. Exactly. So, well, they're like, oh, well, who, where, where can we start a colony? How about Central America? So they pack off all of their finances on this colonial venture to somewhere, and I think it's somewhere around Costa Rica, Panama, that part of the world. And the whole thing goes really badly. Everyone dies of... Uh, tropical diseases or they're attacked by the Spanish who already are very well established in the area mm-hmm. and the colony doesn't make any money and then everyone starves to death and at the end our finances are so bad they have to basically go to the English crown and say well um, we've got a wee problem we've got right? a wee problem we've got no money <laughs> um, at which point the English say okay we can uh, we can bail you out but only if you become part of mm. Britain is this a wedding proposal <laughs> of a sort, and that is how. That is why, um, uh, of course, the queen is not n- really queen of. She's queen of Scotland and England. Yeah, right. It's one crown. They're not separate titles as yeah. they once were. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, super interesting. So um, it was a good. It was a good patch of history for driving your country into economic ruin. And and one of the things about that period is that. Um, Global national product and domestic national product in various countries, even the uh, more successful ones, was sufficiently low and the means of storing wealth was sufficiently concentrated that you really could pack in a year or two's worth of GDP. I mean, on a I know boat, yes. On a boat. So at one stage, the Brits, British pirates sort of basically take a couple of Spanish... Treasure galleons, yeah. Yeah, and it's two years' worth of Spanish GDP. Yeah. That's uh, so you know we, we think about like okay, ESCOM's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> its debt is like uh, oh, that, that is that 30% is thirty percent of GDP. That is the magical thing actually about the sort of pre-modern world is that you can literally steal an entire government's you know yeah. budget yeah. with with a couple of uh, wagons. Yeah. <laughs> so the stakes were super high, um, and since then things have somewhat calmed down. Of course, they get worse again in the twentieth century because the the technology of, of violence gets so much better. Mm. Um, but back to the liberal world order, right? <laughs> so, so this is just to say, I want to say about Niall Ferguson that um, because he's thinking about finance in these ways, mm. he plugs into the fact that there is a fundamental problem with the way that the American financial system is being organized in the mid-2000s, in particular sort of the way that it's developed Pax Americana Mm. um, after the fall of the Soviet Union. It's made a few sort of of exactly the kinds of strategic mistakes that expose one to over-leveraging and and a bubble growing in the financial market that then is going to bust. So he starts writing a book called The Ascent of Money, which is basically about how uh, money goes through these movements, uh, these these evolutions from you know uh, uh, being denominated or backed by hard metals to sort of more fiat based things, the, the inflations, the bond markets that then really in, uh, increase the money yeah, supply. The way these, that gets taken advantage of. Hyper complex financial markets today. And then yeah. you get the hyper complex financial markets today, and he sees that as different as they are, they actually bear a lot of similarities mm-hmm. to what's going on in France in the 1780s and what's going on before the uh, before the the Dutch Gelder screws itself up and the yeah, Brits yeah. get into trouble and so he starts writing this book basically foreseeing a nightmare in the American financial market and he sees that it's coming out of the housing mm. um, bubble. Where you've got lots of speculation backed by the government. Yep. So he sees it coming, he writes the book and the book ends up coming out as the crisis is hitting <laughs> and he does pretty well for himself and becomes a bit causing of a his phenomenon. Publi- causing his publisher to fill an entire swimming pool full of champagne and yes. roll around in piles of money. 
<laughs> and make a TV show. And then the next big book and TV show is about the West. You know, this, this, idea this of the is West actually and, one of the yeah. problems with France's uh, books, right? Because he writes these scenario books of which his new one is going to be a continuation of said series. And the problem is, you know, because he's not making, telling us exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. We can't, we can't, you know, if South Africa suddenly Claim falls apart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, we've, 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 we've left ourselves room, but <laughs> so I don't think we're going to be having a champagne pool bath. No, no. But I do think that our problems are, are different. Still does give France the opportunity to write the greatest I told you so book in world history. I think the day will come. It probably is. So, okay. So this is, this is now Ferguson and this is Fareed Zakaria. Um, and there, and now Ferguson is arguing that the liberal world order is over, mm. and Fareed Zakaria is saying, no, 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 it's still got legs. In fact, it's doing better than it ever was. Fareed Zakaria is very close friends with Steven Pinker, uh, who is probably the most famous American academic to argue that life is much better now. Life expectancy yes. is much better. With Calories, ver- protein, uh, access to financial markets. Very solid piece. Um, uh, data behind da- it. Very data-based uh, arguments for why things are better now. Oh, and, and, and in a lot of ways, an unassailable argument, at least in material terms, right? Yeah. So um, one of the interesting things is the first time they have this debate is sort of in the middle of the year, June, July, whatever it is, mm. uh, the Northern Hemisphere summer, and they have it in uh, Canada. Yes. Uh, sort of great lefty bastion of the world. Mm. And everyone votes very harshly in nice favor. Nice lefty, not, not, not Venezuela-y lefty. Yeah. Like cuddly lefty. Cuddly, cuddly lefty. And they're all, you know, the first, before the debate starts, they vote. And the vast majority are on side with Fareed Zakaria. They say, no, the liberal world order is far from over. And then after the debate, even more people vote for Fareed Zakaria. So mm-hmm. he really does well. And the second debate they have quite recently, I think a few weeks ago, in Ukraine. Uh, otherwise known as the Ukraine. The Ukraine. And there the vote comes out much more 50-50 to start with. And by the end of it, uh, there's a majority in favor of Niall Ferguson's claim that the liberal world order is over. Well, sitting in Ukraine, it's kind of a little bit difficult to come to any other conclusion because the world seems a little bit not great. Yeah. So the, 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 the fundamental reason, I think the moment where Fareed Zakaria and, and Niall Ferguson sort of pin themselves to quite precise claims that then let the Ukrainians know what's going on and that have them switch away from the claim that is still working the liberal world order to, to thinking it's over. It's quite a particular thing. And I want to get to that. That sort of segues to our second topic. But the first thing is just quite an abstract bigger picture question or series of questions one of them being what is the liberal world order Mm. um and i think the answer to that is to understand classical liberalism in a lot of the ways that we think about it here at the institute it's not like in america where the word liberal denotes leftist statist big interventionist Yeah, progressive is a more accurate term yeah in the u.s um and it's not like in france where liberal means uh, something more like libertarian, right-wing, small, very, very small government, smaller than you've got mm. it right now, and kind of let um, let markets take care of everything, no more intervention. Liberalism in this big L sense of the word is more about the rule of law being governed by rules rather mm. than by individuals. And I think also there's a sense of there's less excitement in politics in that kind of liberalism for in, in many ways for, for the way I see it. So all of the big sort of, you know, anti-liberal movements, there's a lot of energy and kind of uh, 
you know, visions for the future, enthusiasm behind them. You know, people get really excited about Donald Trump. People get really excited about, you know, whoever Chavez, uh, you know, there's uh, a... I don't know. I think because people got really excited about Obama too. And I think Obama would fit into... One of the things I'm trying to say is that Obama and Bill Clinton and Bush and Bush's kid... And Theresa May and Tony Blair, you know, people from the left and the right wing of the aisle both fit into this liberal picture Mm. of the liberal world order. But in terms of this idea of excitement, I think there is a point there. Appiah, Kwame Anthony Appiah, who I often mention, (laughs) he draws the distinction (laughs) at the level of what defines a people. Mm. So the more that a people being the sort of unit of a society, the, the thing that a government coheres over, is defined by... Um, antagonism or defined by some very hardline kind of common ancestry myth. That's the kind of thing that excites people quite often. Um, you, if you think of the fascists who are clearly not liberals, yes. they're very excited. And part of the reason they're very excited is because they're sure that they know where pure evil lies yes, and they know how to uh, obliterate it. And also they're sure about what makes a people and the answer but to that is something very exciting. It's this I big family perhaps, group. Yeah, I think perhaps to explain my story a little bit more um, is that the excitement sort of reaches down into the depths of one's life, into every aspect of it. In a way, I think that liberalism sometimes might do, but generally doesn't. You know, you don't... There's a fascist way to have a family, uh, you know, to, to live to your sort of national ideals or whatever. But it isn't quite the same for a liberal family. A liberal family can have many different forms, I think. It doesn't, the, the ideology, the worldview, the system doesn't really prescribe. It's not as totalizing. It's not as totalizing. It doesn't have as many details filled in. Um, it's just, it's more focused on the sort of top structures, I think. Okay. So, yeah, that does, that sounds tempting. I'm. <laughs> I'm a little bit reluctant to buy into it because I think that there are some people who would think of themselves as liberals and think of their lives as being liberal to the core. Mm. People who work in politics but or I, the media I, and I people whose social lives are defined by the networking and people whose family lives are sort of defined by their social lives. Liberal, liberal does, I think, have a... It does make the distinction at least some of the time between the personal and the political, whereas a lot of other ideologies do not. Yeah. Now I really want to push back on this. Oh, yeah, go on. <laughs> I can see the hunger in your eyes. <laughs> the distinction between the personal and the political. I think that one of the things that might, one of the changes in the shape of of many European societies, American mm. societies, and downstream of that, modern societies, would be rethinking ideas about criminal justice and rethinking ideas about insanity or clinical, mm. you know, the, the ways that we legally define people as being on a spectrum or being beyond the spectrum to the point where they're no longer responsible agents. And the, I think some of those shifts have been about coming to terms with the fact that really the distinction between the political and the personal is an artificial distinction that for certain purposes is quite useful to to speak about private lives versus public lives, um, but that in quite a deep way, your private life, uh, once it's outside of your mind, once it's anything like a conversation, even to some extent, if it is just inside your mind. But let's, let's be strict yeah, and no, say anything, anytime I, something's outside of your mind, 
then it is political. Yeah. So I, I know this is a quite favoured amongst radical feminists. Often, kind of see yeah. the political and the private wound amongst each other. But I do think that from a sort of state power perspective, that liberals have a distinction there in the way that they look at the family. No, because back in the day, one of the justifications, and this is to the feminist point, mm. and similar points can be made in criminal justice and, and clinical psychology, um, the, the thought was you don't need to let women vote because they're already part of a family unit. The children don't vote. The women don't vote. They all get represented by the man. Mm. And, so, and the reason that you need to have that uh, distinction between the private space, which is in the home, where they can all converse with each other and persuade one another of who to vote for and what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. And the public square, where each family gets one representative, is that the thought was, if you start letting the rules of politics, which is competitive, which involves kind of dissing people or esteeming people, um, liking people and disliking people, if you let those kinds of tensions creep into the family by allowing husbands and wives to vote for different people, then what you're going to be doing is encroaching upon the private life uh, introducing politics into the dining room or the TV room later on, and and that's going to have uh, detrimental social effects. And the, and the feminist comeback was, dude, if you think what's going on in the dining room or in the selection of which consumer goods to buy or not buy or where to move is not already a political decision that's framed within the rules system that we all adhere to and the economic incentives that we are all, to some extent, motivated by, then you're starting on a fake premise. The premise that you've got a private realm that then can be represented in the public square by one or more people is, is starting at the wrong place, and that's leading to you to the wrong conclusion that will be introducing political strife by giving women the vote. In fact, this political strife is already there. You just can't see it because it's been kept behind this veil of ignorance, right? You, you, you use the private-public divide. If you get to decide wherever it is, the temptation is great, even inadvertently, to put the divide between private and public so that the, the moments of oppression are hidden in private uh, to the benefits of, of those who, who end up winning in the public square. So that's kind of, anyway, I'm, I'm, I, this is not to say that I don't at a like look-feel user interface get the sense of what you're saying. Fascists somehow tend to, or hardcore Marxists seem to like have it in their bones. But I think that part of the other look-feel reason that I want to say that liberalism can be in your bones too is that I think it really is as deep and as insightful and as powerful, in fact, more deep, more insightful and more powerful uh, uh, an ideology yeah, no, than I, the others. I'd, I'd agree with and that. And that someone whose spine straightens up when they stand shoulder to shoulder with fellow liberals is, is yeah, being a, being as a, committed as... Being know. a free person is, is, is a very powerful thing. Um, in a way that that the same way that being part of a you know a great movement like a Marxist or a fascist movement can also be very empowering to the individual and give you a real sense of place in the world, mm, mm, um, mm. and it, it, that it is felt very strongly culturally. I mean, look at the difference in how people in mainland China and people in Hong Kong yeah. uh, respond to state intervention. Uh, in Hong Kong, they protest and they fight the police and they put up posters and they create art and they. They push back with everything they have. Yeah, they get bloody faces and tear-gassed eyes. And in mainland China, they say, it's best just not to talk about these things because you're just going to cause trouble for yourself. Yeah. That sort of shortcut, yeah, as prudent... Long as, as long as we can, it's a, almost a more practical, practical approach, right? It's yeah. As long as we've still got something to eat yeah. and we're doing okay in our own lives, yeah. don't rock the boat. Yeah, and I think of friends I know from the Soviet Union who, who were born in the 70s or earlier, for them to wear long hair... 
really was a profound political statement. Also wear jeans. Yeah. Uh, and that's like a very much at home, private kind of thing. Yes. Okay, but so, so this distinction is useful, I think, to make one of the points that is quite abstract, um, but that I, that I that helps me think about um, geopolitics at an international level, uh, which is necessary to answer this question of whether the liberal world order is still in play or not. And it's a distinction that's drawn by Socrates. Um, in the Republic. <laughs> you know, it's going to be a good answer. <laughs> we go back to Socrates. <laughs> so I should just... I Wait, should did just you say Socrates in the Republic? Yeah. Wasn't Plato to the Republic? Well, Plato wrote it, but Socrates yes. is speaking. Oh, right. And I say that the point is made by Socrates because I think that it's a point that Plato somewhat ironically presents, which is why I missed it. The other reason I might have missed it when I first read the Republic was that I was at university and I was in the I mean, rugby there, team. There is this whole question about whether, you know, Socrates really exists, so to speak. Or whether he's right. not just a literary device by Plato, but let's not get sidetracked to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I was at you, well, my little sidetrack is that I, I read the Republic on the way to two rugby matches uh, when I was at university because <laughs> they were quite far away from where we were. So it was like a three, four hour drive. Then you read a little bit on the way back and you get drunk and you drink out of each other's shoes. Yeah, I didn't understand how you were cooler at school than I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was not doing well. Anyway, no, it's fine. But so, but so Christine Korsgaard is a living philosopher and, and one of the most respected Kantian philosophers. And um, she, made, she drew, redrew my attention to this in a piece that she wrote um, later on. And then I went back and looked at it and I found that it's true. The Republic is one of the great philosophical texts and what it's trying to answer is how to live a good life as an yeah. individual. Yeah. And it's one of the early on tensions as well, you know, but do you mean like in a public way or in a private way by whose system of evaluations, gods or some neutral view from nowhere or what's going on? And he says, well, dude, it's quite hard to answer this question directly. Um, so let's, let's just use an analogy. Let's think of a city state. Let's think what makes a good city state. Mm. And then let's see if the answer to that comes back to giving a good answer for what makes an individual good life. Mm. And at the level of the city state, he sees that needing uh, needs difference between satisfying appetites and satisfying security and satisfying reason. So at the base level, he's got the, you know, the lower chakras, yes. the, the food the and, the, and the liver. And genitalia yeah, and yeah, yeah. the fun times and all that and then in the chest he's, you've got the guardians men of honour women of honour I think maybe what we might impute retrospectively uh, who are going to defend the city uh, from itself and from others and then at the top the reasoners mm. up in the head thinking it through the philosopher king right at the pinnacle and he thought well okay you know to cut a very long story short and obviously I'm reducing a lot so that's how you want to organise a really good city state well, maybe that's how you want to organize your life. You want to satisfy your appetites, but you need to do that inside the confines of honor. Mm. And then the constraints of honor need to be sort of managed and mitigated by reason. By reason. Mm. Okay, so that's like quite a nice, elegant sort of way to start out investigations into many aspects of the human condition. But there's a very interesting point that uh, is so easy to overlook, which is that the entire argument depends on this analogy between the city-state and the individual. Mm. And Socrates pushes that analogy harder and harder and harder throughout. And he gets challenged on it by his interlocutors. Um, but there's one point at which he says, no, 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 no. Here, in terms of this, it is dis disanalogous. And that is to do with what I might say are moral relations or what it is to look at another person eye to eye 
as an equal. Because his view of the way that city-states relate to each other is that they can't really make promises. They can't really say, I'm sorry. They can't really, one city-state, it has to be like a single agent for the analogy to go through at all. It must have one idea, one plan, one way of thinking about things or doing things, a set of habits. So if you've got two city-states, it's a lot like having two individuals. But whereas Socrates thinks you can only live the good life as an individual if you're relating to other individuals under the duties of morality and the honor of sort of what it is to be a human and sharing this fellow uh, sense of the world and, and reason. As city-states, you are wolves. Man is to man a wolf. Yes. If you make a promise, it's just a performance of a promise to beguile yes. your enemy into a it's, moment of complacency. It's like, it's like Hobbes' state of nature. It's just everyone against everyone, total savagery, temporary alliances, yeah. everything for material gain and honor, nothing else. So, and so it might be very peaceful if you've got a balance of forces. Yes, if, that is, but it can only be through sort of fear. Yes, yeah. that's delicately aligned. Then everyone's too afraid. Then it's a Mexican standoff. Mm. There's five of us in the room. We all have a gun pointed at the next guy's head. None of us are going to pull the trigger because that's going to mean certain self-death. So you can have peace, um, but it's not peace in this ethical sense yes. that you have within a well-ordered city-state. And so that is the first definition that I find um, of the distinction between realpolitik, this view of man is to man a wolf, or the city-state is to the other city-state a wolf, versus this idea that there really are promises to be made, that there really are compacts, deals, and there really is such a thing as treating another as an end in and of herself being good to this country because that in itself is a good thing. Mm. And I think that is an essential ingredient of the liberal world order. When you speak of the liberal world order, we think of a rules-bound system in which states are not just out to leverage competitive advantage against each other, but which in is, is a situation in which they can sometimes treat one another as if they are common citizens the of the global of nations, order. Yeah. The brotherhood of nations, the global sisterhood village, the sisterhood of nations. These are the metaphors that we use. Yeah. So the question, in a way, is not whether wars on the horizon. It's not whether um, trade wars are going to get better or worse. It's rather whether the rules of the game are going to tilt towards the real politic or tilt or stay, at least in this performance of of being nice to each other because we really mean it. And well, I don't think I don't think that's the whole answer of what people think of when they think of the liberal world order. So that's more the sort of world order part, right? Yeah. But the liberal part, I think there's also a there's a feeling of what countries aspire to within themselves. What is the sort of gold standard of what a country is supposed to look like? So one might think the uh, uh, the question that's being asked here is in a hundred years from now will, when a new country is formed, will it try to set itself up as a liberal democracy, at least in its sort of clothing and terminology? as countries do today, you know, even like South Sudan is a republic. Yeah, nominally, yeah. Sort of. Or will they try and be a little bit more like Russia or China and that they will just kind of do away with the republican trappings entirely and that the gold standard will be, you know, strongman authoritarian capitalist, for example. Yeah, but so I think that one of the, one of the things, one of the through lines that goes from the top to the bottom is this idea that a human being is valuable per se. Because yes. there's a version of fascism uh, in which the thing that's important, and I would say this is a key idea to fascism, is that the thing that the real unit of value is the race. Mm. 
yeah. or is somehow or the, the people the nation. as a group. And then derivative of that, downstream of that, you find that some individuals get to be valuable because they belong to the group or they don't belong to the group or where they are in the hierarchy of the yeah. particular group. Likewise, communism, the thing that really matters is uh, the utopia at the end of history yeah. where all the shackles of unfreedom have been taken off and capital is done away with and so too is government. And we all and live in have. collective harmony. That's the thing that really mm. matters is the total is the tot the total of the totality of all humankind and the individual really doesn't matter and those are useful ideologies if what you want to do is spill tons of blood um because people think that you know spilling some blood is is worth it yeah um for the group the liberals have a slightly more complicated task where for them if it's worth it to spill blood your own uh it's because you're defending a rules-based system, yes. but the reason the rules-based system is important is because it, it holds... It protects the individual. It protects individuals. Mm. So it's individuals are the things that really matter versus some groups are the things that really yes. matter. It's a kind of simple way of yeah. um, drawing, drawing this distinction. So, so, so... I don't know, Nick. Shall we? Shall we do the boxing quickly? <laughs> I'm not sure if we should do the boxing. <laughs> well, we had this argument today about uh, whether it's worth. So the kind of I think general view on modern politics is that most political movements in the modern world can be divided into one of sort of three boxes. One is uh, kind of Marxist communisty box. One is a sort of fascist nationalisty sort of box, and one is a kind of uh, liberally box. Now, I and mean, I think we've done so. Now, what we've done is yeah, we've sort of set up some language yeah. to understand what we mean by that liberal box. Um, and there's a lot, there's quite a lot of contention, as in these, there always is in these types of debates over what each of those terms mean. Like, what is nationalism, for example? Yeah. Um, so let's leave nationalism on fascism. Yeah. We'll fascism, communism, liberalism. Yes. Um, but we were discussing whether there should maybe perhaps be a fourth box. Yeah. To to describe certain movements in the world today. Yeah, and so one of the reasons I think that this is a useful idea is this bigger question of is the liberal world order over is, is that some countries are clearly still inside the liberal paradigm, mm. whatever it's been. Some countries, oh, you know, I think there are some hardcore communist countries around. North Korea is a good example. China's a complicated one, but it mm. does nominally fit inside of that. Venezuela yeah, deep on its way. And then fascism... Is and it's it's a little bit more complicated to say yeah. well which countries are fascist, um, but you could maybe say that there are elements of fascism in, uh, for example, the Polish Law and Justice Party. I don't know enough about them to really say that, but they don't seem to be too keen on things like the judiciary, and they're quite keen on nationhood and punishing people who insult the Polish nation. Um, Putin, by some measures, you could say he's got a kind of uh, fascisty vibe to him. Although I know you get. To you're very defensive of your beloved Russia. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just think it's a category error. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's time um, to, to do uh, a bit arguably, of rethinking uh, of categories. In uh, India, under Modi, there's... India! <laughs> India. Or this Hindi guy <laughs> so Anglo-Saxon, he still refers to India. Her <laughs> Majesty's Hindu. You know that the, the name uh, Hindu, the term Hindu, is actually, I, I believe it's a Persian name. Um, for India, they used the Farsi. Persian, the Persians used to call India Hindustan. Yes, as in that the, is right, the land of the Hindus, and that being people beyond a certain you know 
geographic space. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the, the, the Hindi word for, for India is something like Bharat or, Bharat or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, sidetracked. No. You can see in, um, in uh, Modi, the prime minister of India, there's a, there's a kind of, he's been called a Hindu nationalist. Um, yeah. And there's a sort of aspect of the nation, the nation and the, there's a sort of fascist echo there maybe. Um, well, in particular, I mean, I've been seeing news items that I can't speak to the ver- veracity of because I don't mm. know their newscape well enough, but of uh, new incidents of police shooting people down, shooting Muslims down in the streets. And yeah. there have been some terrible massacres, tens of thousands of people. And a lot of, yeah, especially in Gujarat a few years yeah. ago. Um, and there are these very... Uh, it, that 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 hold the whole ideology of of at least aspects of his party, maybe not necessarily Modi himself, but some of the groups affiliated with his party very much take the view that the nation, the Hindu nation as they define it, is what's key, and yeah, and it is defined by common ancestry, so it's got this yeah. family idea, which is this key fascist idea, um, and also that uh, that the other must be done away with, yeah, obliterated or yes. excommunicated or expelled, yes. evacuated. So and then of course I mean the, the KKK is tiny but it exists in the US yeah, and it's still it kicking clearly around and uh, the, the the what are they called the the alt right kids uh, you know groypers and what are the, some of the other groups now yeah I'm, I I don't do the internet as cleverly as you do so yeah they they the, the I can't remember what the other group was the the unite the right rally types from Charlottesville HN uh, or whatever yeah 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 HN people and then in South Africa I think uh, my way of understanding apartheid is it's fascist. Yes. Um, and it fits in that box. And then one of the difficult things about thinking about apartheid is that relative to everything else in the box. <laughs> it's a pretty bad box. <laughs> it's a really bad box. So then relative to the other things in the box, um, you can get confused into thinking it was a good thing. But if you don't look at it relative to the other things in the box, then you can get confused about what kinds of solutions are correct to apply to the problems that is created in the first place. Mm. So there's this kind of thing where you don't really want to look in the box. Once it's in the box, you're like, well, it's in the fascist box, so it's all the same. Because uh, if you open the box and you start making comparisons between things inside the box, it's like you've opened Pandora's box. Even to just make such a comparison is to allow evil back into the world. And this is a this is a sort of nervy way of looking at things that I think is... But yeah, I think there is still a lot of apprehension and even you can see in a Lumbernau discussion now about what exactly fascism... You know, it has a... It has a it's really heavy. It. It's it has really a heavy. heavy stink about it that uh, other the other two boxes don't really have. Even though, I mean, of course, we know the crimes of communism are vast and many. Yes, indeed. And we know that both very, very well. Yeah. Yes. Um, but so anyway, they're these sort of three boxes, but you've argued that there should be perhaps another one. Yeah, and I take this argument from Niall Ferguson. Hmm. So the problem is Donald Trump. That's one. That's the most obvious problem, I think, for most South Africans who might find themselves listening to a podcast. Um, is that Trump is difficult to squeeze into any of those boxes? Okay, he's clearly not a Marxist, he, communist. He, yeah, he does make people feel a little bit uncomfortable in in the sort of more general liberal space. My favorite story about this <laughs> is. A, a guy who went to South Sudan and he was talking to a local South Sudanese guy there and they were talking about the civil war and everything that was going on and the horrible famine that was breaking out and then the 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 local South Sudanese guy said, that's all very well and good and the, the guy he was talking to was American. But before we talk more about South Sudan, I just need to know, is this Donald Trump guy as bad as they really say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but don't you know this? I mean, I've I've had this experience with quite a lot of my American friends. Is like if if we don't speak voice to voice or face to face on Skype, mm. or they don't come for a visit, and we're just going down by email. If I mention anything about South African politics, and I generally try and avoid it, yeah, they might ask something. They always end up saying, I mean, but as bad as you might think things are, dude, let me assure you, things are worse here. <laughs> and I've had Americans come and visit us a few times. And the last time an American came, I remember my mom saying, God damn it, would you just shut up? <laughs> Give us something. Like if we're going to be in a much more precarious situation than anywhere else, if we're going to be basically starving people at a rate that you couldn't dream of, yeah. if we are committing economic suicide in a way that is uh, you know, just out of your league, at least let us win at fetching yeah. about it. Let us win at being bad. Come on. Yeah. Let us at least complain and you can be like, okay, well, that sucks and you're brave sucks, and good. You know, and, you know, yeah. Well done on surviving. And look, maybe you should come over sleep on my couch if you yeah. like really if the lights go out. Uh, you know, we have no electricity sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, in hurricane season. Yeah, <laughs> yeah without hurricanes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or so, tornadoes or earthquakes. Just by ideology. So, so the point we kind of came to in our discussion earlier was something like this. The liberal box doesn't quite seem to fit Trump in it, or at least a lot of people are very uncomfortable putting him in that box. Yeah. They want to put him in the fascist box. And that's no good either. Yeah. Because when, you, when someone's in the fascist box, and we were sort of saying the fascist box has got a hardcore, yeah. where once something is hardcore fascist, you should just shoot it in the face. This is sort of George Orwell's solution. You know, he was a writer and probably one of the best writers of the 20th century. But he's like, dude, at some stage, words ain't doing it. You need to load your gun. You need to aim and shoot someone in the face. And he took a bullet in the neck from fascists and he killed a few fascists. And, you know, he, 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 wasn't, uh, he, he wasn't talking up bravado He here. walked the walk, yes. He walked the walk. And it's a, I think it's a very serious thing to contemplate. You know, sometimes we've lived in a very peaceful time in a, very, in a relatively peaceful way. The long peace, as they call it. Yeah. Um, but there, there is such a thing as, as such an absolute threat upon freedom. You don't have to hate the people. Orwell also pointed out, dudes are flying over my head, trying to bomb me. Here I am in London, just reading a book. Uh, I don't hate them. Maybe that's a very nice family man uh, who's trying to drop bombs on my head. But if I could shoot him, I would. Yeah, well, it's the, it's the, the argument for the Second World War. Yeah. So, so in that hardcore of fascism, you don't even really engage. You just okay. The, you know, there is yeah. There can be no debate. You've got to incinder this. You've got to bomb cities. The, the values are too people. apart too from each other away. that there can be any kind of that, rational. So real politic yeah. sets in. Yeah. It just is a contest of power. Um, then there's sort of the then there's fascism more generally where m maybe there's room to try and use sanctions or various mm. other kinds of economic pressures to undo the problem. Um, or sometimes even I would argue the ballot box when a fascist uh, regime hasn't completely overwhelmed all of the... Yes, especially uh, if it hasn't really managed to secure the monopoly of violence. Yes. Then uh, fascists pretty much never get a majority opinion without getting the state's uh, apparatus, apparatus behind, to no. intimidate people into supporting them. Mm. So if you, can, if you can get at them with the ballot box before then, that's great. This is sort of what happens with the EFF in South Africa. Mm. Um, yeah, BLF didn't even get a seat. And then afterwards got uh, stopped, you know, got banned by the Constitutional Court. Yeah. It's hilarious. That's a, that's a good way to do it. <laughs> Don't ban them. Just vote them. Just show with votes that they that it's most people are much more reasonable than that. Yes. Okay. But there's this thing about the benefit of the doubt. And my view is that when you're in the fascist box, 
one of the things that's reasonable to withdraw from you is the benefit of the doubt. Mm. I just I think maybe it's still a good idea for some people to try and give the benefit of the doubt and see what's going on. Uh, for example, in apartheid's uh, death throes, there was this question of the third force. Mm. Is what's going on uh, a, a people's war between the ANC and the IFP where really what the ANC is trying to do is eliminate its rivals. Eliminate its rivals. Or have you got white dudes dressed in blackface? You're going around causing trouble to undermine the negotiations. Yeah. So the, so the Nats obviously say, no, 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 it's the, it's, it's, it's the former. These guys, are, these guys are trying to destroy each other. And so we've got to keep st- uh, states of emergency and do everything we can to keep the peace. And you should take us more seriously and maybe reduce your credibility and love of the ANC. A lot of people inside South Africa and around the world say, you guys are fascists. You might be the tallest dwarves of fascism, but you're still fascists. And so when you say that, we don't believe you. When you say you're really just trying to go in to make the peace, we don't believe you. You really have to convince us. So I think that as it turns out retrospectively, maybe that was a mistake. I mean, Anthea Jeffrey really makes a very solid case for why it's a mistake. Uh, Rian Milan, who I know very well, has, has did great work at the time. So did Dennis Beckett about looking mm. at particular Boy Patong, uh, where immediately the ANC's ability to sell the idea around the world that this was a third force activity yeah. um, shifted Codessa to it, it shifted the, the, the it was a potentially a watershed moment in South Africa's history that gave a greater centralization of power to the future ruling party, which was something that no ruling party can easily manage, and so does a mistake. And giving the benefit of the doubt, as those brave journalists did, mm. at the potential cost of their own sanity. You know, it's like mm. very hard. Now, who do I trust when yeah, I'm starting to doubt these guys and I'm starting to doubt these the guys? The human mind to wants to have neat little yeah. uh, answers to things like this. And the answer is that. They're kind of all bad, but in different ways. It's not a very comfortable one with the human mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, but f- for all that, I think it's I think reasonable people are entitled to withdraw the benefit of the doubt from fascists. Yes. And so, if Trump's a fascist, then you withdraw the benefit of the doubt from him, and then you are like well, a yeah, sitting it, duck to opportunists on the other side who are going to convince you to go along with a whole bunch of very very dumb ideas. Anything. Anything, anything, because you've just sold out half of America mm. as being beguiled by a total huckster that's fully evil and that would crush the free world if he could. As, as Hillary Clinton said herself, the uh, basket of deplorables. Yeah. To be fair, she didn't say half of America. She only said about a quarter of America. <laughs> if you, if you read her <laughs> thing, you're she very says, generous. No, no, no. She says in, a, in, a, in the full kind of paragraph of that, she says, Half of Trump supporters are just kind of regular old people who have some of the wrong ideas and we can reach them. But the yeah. other half are this basket of deplorables. That you who can't, touch with can't touch because they're all evil. Yeah. Um, which is actually a softer version of Mitt Romney's... Uh, <laughs> yes, percent or something. 47% of Americans are just takers. Well, I, he didn't say it quite like that. Come on, give old Mitt the bit of the doubt. He too, he was Sorry, like... He said, it, he said they don't pay income tax. He said I it think. with much more... He, he had the sound of money in his laugh. Okay, Mitt wasn't that bad. Give him a break. <laughs> Mitt was really bad. I mean, he was good as a governor, and then he was really bad as a presidential candidate. Uh, the dude drives with his dogs on the roof. <laughs> okay, look, he's weird, and he's a Mormon, but come on, dude. Like, like, you know, let's just say that I think most Americans who are not so happy with the current situation today would be much more glad to have him be in charge now. 
That's for sure. Exactly. That's he's, for sure. He's still in the, he's, he's definitely not, he, he can't He's not as divisive confused, or alienating yeah. as Donald Trump is. So here we come back to the question of what do you do with Donald Trump? If you can't fit him into the fascist box, which I think you really, I think it's so dangerous that so many people do, and the Democrats doing that has gotten them on this impeachment road, which uh, I was just looking at Vanity Fair's new polls show that that's already probably backfiring. They're referencing Gallup polls as well, showing that like uh, Trump's support seems yeah, to be going it's a, up it's because because the, because when you th- when you're throwing out the basic rules and norms of constitutional democracy in order to get at this guy because you say he's a fascist and he's so evil that no matter what you're doing to get rid of him is worth it because that would be true if you if you were going after Hitler assassination would be worth it if you were going after Hitler yeah, for so sure. if Donald Trump was a Hitler you we should just assassinate him if we could which some people legitimately people who in a normal circumstances four years ago yeah were not crazy people are now saying you should kill Donald Trump which is insane yeah so so that's the problem of keeping him in the fascist box. The problem of keeping him in the liberal box is that he does seem to me to be both capable of and interested in reducing, bringing us down closer to real politic mm. and further away from that liberal ideal of nation states being able to make good promises with each other and backing each other as interests in themselves. As, as he said once he had... Uh uh, abandoned the Kurds to their fates in Syria, he said, but we will keep some troops there to guard the oil. Yeah. And he says of, you know, wars in the Middle East generally, the only reason America should ever go in is to take oil. Or resources of some kind, or, yeah. You know, so he's very hard. He really sounds like Bismarck to, to, of the 1870s. To quote Trump himself, I go hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's always a bad idea. You know, with North Korea, I was quite keen on him saying we're going to blow you to high heaven if you think about doing anything against our interests. Yeah. That ultimate threat seems like it is like a giant open-air prison. Necess- exactly. So sometimes, as we were saying earlier, when you're dealing with fascists or totalitarian communists, then there just is no option left of really being kind of face-to-face treat you as an equal. So instead, Trump sets out the framework of that relationship as being totally brutal real politic we yeah. will destroy you if you cross these lines and then within that you can be as cozy and as performative of love letters as you want because you've already established the the background power conditions of if you don't do what we say i'm going to kill you which is something that fathers don't say to their sons that no. mothers don't say to their daughters <laughs> that's that is not a human way of relating it's a it's a brutal way of relating. yes and that's very much where he's been and so Niall ferguson's idea is that you should look back to history to see if there is any precedent for this this fourth box something that's not as military as uh, militant and ag- as aggressive as fascists but not as sort of uh staunch on protecting the norms that preserve individual freedom as liberals and not as into statism and the public ownership of everything as communists and the totalization of you know fascism yeah and what he finds is the populist party of the 1890s, I think it is, through to the early 20th century, mm. um, who basically campaign on less immigration and increased tariffs so that America's government basically starts intervening in the world order in a way that is going to directly benefit the American lower and middle working classes. Yeah. Now, that just does sound like 
what's going on with Donald, like Donald Trump. Trump's pitch. It's not like fascism because as much as Trump speaks up war and blowing things up, he doesn't see war as a project to unify as the nation. We've also talked about on this podcast about how he's uh, quite dovish actually when it comes to pushing the button on yeah. certain issues. Big at bark, low on bite, which is the opposite of fascists. Fascists were big at talking a peace when it suited them. <laughs> the greatest speech maker about peace in Europe in the 1930s was Adolf Hitler. And then when it suits them, they'll turn around and uh, and try and invade the world. Yeah. And there's just no thought that Donald Trump is going to try and invade any kind of substantial country uh, that is any sort of uh, anything like parity or um, that could pose any threat to the U.S. Fascists generally think that they can win big wars with people almost as strong as them because, because they have superior will and their folk are you know, genetically or spiritually stronger than their opponents. Yeah, so it's not enough to look at GDP. It's not enough to look at military material. You also have to see the will of the people. Uh, this is uh, In the Second World War, this is very clear when um, Hitler didn't have a problem declaring war in the United States, even though he didn't really necessarily he have to. It was a bad idea strategically. I mean, he could have... Uh, it, well, he d they did it in, on, on, uh, in theory. Uh, you know, uh, officially, because Japan um, requested it, basically, and they were supposed to be allies. Uh, but he easily could have broken that pact. Really, would have cost him nothing. The Japanese weren't holding up their end of attacking uh, uh, the Soviet Union anyway. Um, and yet, he decides to do it because he says they're a nation of weaklings, shopkeepers controlled by Jews, or something like that. Yeah. And He's so, just yeah, deluded what, by his own. Who cares what their economy size is, or how many ships they have, or how many tanks they can build? How quickly in a they can build an aircraft carrier exactly. or a five-engine jet. It means nothing because the German folk are superior in our will and our determination. Yeah, big it's mistake. Big mistake. <laughs> Adolf. Yeah, at least Adolf killed Adolf. Hey, eh? can't yeah, take that yeah, away yeah, from him. Yeah. One good thing he did. <laughs> so, 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 basically. Yeah, Donald Trump isn't. Not that. And he's really not that. One, one of my favorite pundits, he's also uh, <clears throat> a little bit less skilled. Uh, one yeah. of my favorite pundits likes to point out that, you know, if Hitler was president of the United States, Hitler would have gotten Obamacare repealed, which Trump failed to do. <laughs> yeah. If, if Donald Trump was Hitler... A fascist has to be at least a little bit effective in order for them to, you know... To really fear. count as a fascist. <laughs> Jim, Jim Acosta, or whatever his name is, that guy, that other guy at CNN, the other end of the spectrum yes. to Fareed Zakaria... Donald Trump was a fascist. That dude wouldn't be making bank yeah, of exactly. writing silly books about and resisting the president with words from inside the White House. I, I speak under correction, but I do actually believe that to date, so far, Obama, Obama's government prosecuted more journalists than Donald Trump's government. So it is a strange kind of fascist that is not, you know, yeah. for all of his rhetoric, which is very hostile to the media, he's actually, in concrete terms, not really done that much. So what you have is... Someone, because of his rhetoric, who doesn't fit into the liberal box, mm. but because of his actions, doesn't fit into the fascist box. And I'm not sure that the, that the populist box really works as an alternative box to put, well, put him in. Part of the problem is we don't necessarily know exactly what to call that box. Populist is a nice term because it's the term that a lot of the kind of Donald Trumpy people themselves often use. Yeah. But it also has this whole connotation of being... Kind of, as one of our colleagues in the office today said, uh, in favor of things that are stupid but popular. Yeah. So, so, so we try and going through a few definitions of populist. Yes. And that's a really not useful definition 
in my view, because it's got a value judgment built into it. If you take the value judgment off it, it's just popular ideas, then any anyone who's doing a, a job in a democracy is going to be populist. If it's bad but popular ideas, then you've got the value judgment built in. Now notice that fascism can be defined and the way we've defined it was not a value judgment. Mm. We said that it's a way of coordinating a society such that the, the unit of value is the collective, where the collective is defined by some notion of peoplehood, most commonly common ancestry, yeah. maybe perhaps also you earlier argued. Kind uh, of cultural, religious, cultural, or religious national identity. Like or, yeah, yeah. So, and then you can say, well, as soon as you know that a society is organized that way, it's a bad thing, but first you can describe it and then you can evaluate it. Nicholas is having a minor <laughs> moment here. <laughs> Hit the microphone by mistake. He hasn't had his Friday (laughs) afternoon whiskey yet. My hands get very shaky. (laughs) (laughs) Same with communism. I can define communism without any value judgment. It's just a description. And then it falls out of that, that it's a terrible idea. Same with liberalism, which is say that it's a way of organizing a society under rules rather than under men or women, such that the rules protect the individual. Okay. Is that a good or a bad thing? That comes, that's a separate judgment to the description itself. So, Populist, if it's going to be like these other boxes, it should be like in these other boxes in that it's described before it's evaluated, not a description which evalu- which which says, you know, this is a description, well, it's when it's stupid ideas that are popular. So that's not a good definition. Another definition that we tried out was that um, it's, it's populist just in case there's a cult of personality, cult of personality yeah. that sort of then uh, that rejects finds itself. ideas or intellectualism. In, in in its totality, basically, and just holds up one person as the center font of esteem and virtue. Yeah. And whatever they say is the good idea. And so that's quite tempting. I'm not sure that, that it has any real application in the world because generally speaking, when you do have cults of personality, um, there is there is quite a strong ideological architecture around them. Like Julius Malema can kind of say up is down and left is right and some of his followers will believe him. But the way that he got to where he is is by talking up Marxist-Leninist ideas and race-nationalist ideas Mm. for a long time. And Donald Trump can certainly contradict himself five minutes at two-minute intervals. He can say up and down and people still dig it. But I think that's partly because he said so many things that are fit into a coherent narrative outside of that that they kind of feel like they know the real him and then if he's doing this, he's just playing around with the media. Well, this is this is one of the disagreements we had is that I, I argued that there's less coherent content than you perhaps suggested there might be to, to Trumpism. Um, so, at, you know, in one of his, I think, State of the Nation speeches, Trump actually said, we're going to have more immigrants, just not illegal ones. Yeah. Um, which one can interpret as you know, uh, being a kind of a way of fitting it. He's just against illegal immigration as that being, you know, about the rules and all that kind of thing. But one could also interpret it as being the complete opposite of his, you know, whole they're bringing Mexicans drugs, are bad. Stay they're away. racists. They're rapists. You know, that yeah. kind of thing that he said yeah. about Mexicans. Yeah. So I, so, so I suppose I probably, I do fall on the side of thinking that most polit- that every single politician that has ever been has contradicted him and herself. I mean, that's true, obviously. But the, I think what, all we were really disagreeing on was the question of degree. Yeah. Like, is, was it a meaningful degree? Yeah. And, 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 okay, so that's a definition of populism. One of the things about that definition of populism, aside from this question of how to apply it within those degrees, mm. is whether it's the same in kind as fascism or socialism or liberalism. Mm. Because... If you admit some level of degree of self-contradiction amongst all politicians, and then you say that populism is just when it goes quite far, 
does that mean that populists as an is it an ideology it seems so empty uh, and if it's really empty enough then it seems like you could have a liberal populist or a yeah. communist populist or a fascist populist just in case you have i mean hitler started out his first manifesto his first sort of promise of here's the things we're going to do includes expropriation of farm property without compensation <laughs> so that's super communist point 25 of the uh, it's point 20 nazi manifesto of yeah. 19 something yeah, yeah. 1921 yeah, it's yeah, it's early days early days and then <laughs> as it happens by the way just so that you know how stupid an idea expropriation without compensation is later on uh, Goebbels and Goering try and start talking this point up and Hitler figures it out and he says what are you doing we cannot keep this promise <laughs> we will lose everything we will lose food security we will the Junkers will turn against us with their money they will flee to the other side and start giving the potatoes to the Ukrainians and the Soviets and this is a very bad idea I was just saying it you know yes. in fact uh, Hitler could never uh, imagine sort of saying something ironically so he was like you know even if it's something we ultimately have to do it's just uh, first you have to literally first you have to destroy America the Soviet Union and England yes. and then you are going to be powerful so, enough so to in other words in other words, the man who believed uh, that he could start a war with every single major power in the world pretty much simultaneously yeah. thought that expropriation without compensation wasn't a great idea. Yeah, he just well thought it was like maybe the it's, right thing to do, yeah, easier but to, impractical. Yeah, something that's going to end up shooting yourself in the foot. Much, much easier to declare war on France and Britain and Russia kind of all within the space of three years of each other. Yeah. But no, no, uh, that, that's so much easier than expropriation without compensation. <laughs> So there's a yeah, it really is a very important and mad bit of that history, right? So, but if Hitler can flip flop, does that mean he's a populist and a fascist? Um, if yeah. so, then they're not distinct boxes. Yeah. So that's why I want to keep populist as a distinct box. And so, my best attempt is to kind of follow Niall Ferguson in saying that the two defining policies are the three defining policies are non-militarist interventionism. Minimal militarist interventionism. You, 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 big bark, small bite. Yeah. Because uh, barking is cheap, biting is costly. Very costly. Um, pro tariffs and relatively anti immigrant. Yes. So relative, not totally trying to wipe to, to what you're currently dealing, currently dealing with. Yeah. And then I want to add to that um, this idea of what the end of history looks like, um, just as a final way to give a shape to it. Um, so, and I, th and, and I didn't have this at the start. Nick actually kind of gave me the idea, but I'm taking it, <laughs> I'm sort of taking it from him. Um, the, the way that communists think of the end of history is one, there's no government, but first there's one government around the world and that government dissolves and then everyone lives in peace and harmony yeah. together. It's not needed anymore because everything's so perfect. Yeah. So that's how you know they're crazy. <laughs> you just look at their view of the end of history. Yes. Then you look at the fascist end of history view and you know and their idea is that one people, one race, one group, particularly in Nazism, has come to dominate the world so that all the other races, shall we say, are either exterminated or subservient to the dominant race. Yeah. And something you could say... And the dominant race lives in this sort of perfect harmony with itself where it all follows its great leader and it works super efficiently and it looks after all of its kind. And it and lives according to its culture, yeah. Mm. And then the liberal ideal, I think the end of history looks a lot like the United Kingdom today. Yeah. Or Sweden or America for that matter. Where the stakes are not that high in politics, everyone kind of gets along around a very broad 
I outlined, but there's a lot of room for disagreements and shouting at each other. And it's like it's like it's like a soap opera. That's just you know, it's kind of this family and that family are kind of you know this one's trying to marry that one and then yeah. they do and then they don't and then this one comes back from the dead and it's the same plot line and, over and over again and but no one while, dies no one yeah, loses all their money and all the while in the background we're just slowly getting wealthy and wealthy until we're all cyborgs yeah <laughs> okay so it's sort of infinite disagreement forever yes <laughs> which sounds like hell to a lot of people but also it's kind of fun especially if you're like into debating yeah. um and then the populists are different because the populists, I say the populists, I say this is the test. You go to someone in 200, you say to someone, look, I've just come out of a time machine from 200 years from now or 500 years from now or whatever it is. And this is what I found. I have found that the New York Times is terrible coverage of Russiagate where it would never admit that Hillary Clinton screwed up the election and that's really what made the difference. And yeah. instead try to blame it all on a P-tape generated in yeah. Russia and Putin's machinations. They were so humiliated by this that the company ended up folding. Yeah. And the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, all other kinds of good newspapers, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, they have come to the position now in retrospect, it's 2,200 years, all the newspapers and books are coming out about the last 200 years and they all say, here's what happened. Donald Trump became president and it changed the direction of American history in a good way. Hmm. I think if the... Greatest if, president ever. If they hear <laughs> he's the greatest president ever and then you say, wow, then this person, this contemporary person says, Trump supporter says, wow, that's really good news. Are you saying everyone? I just want to check something, man. Are you saying absolutely everyone in the year 2200 loves Donald Trump? Then the time traveler says, no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. 80% of the people love Donald Trump. Maybe 90% of the people love Donald Trump. It's not as universally agreed upon as Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, but he's super popular. He's way more popular than FDR. Mm. You know, most people really like him. If the Trump supporter today says, well, that's, that's amazing. What a bloody good thing. That's victory. You know, we're, we win in the end then that is a populist. If the Trumpkin says, what about the other 10%? They must be destroyed. <laughs> Everyone must love Donald Trump for the victory to be complete. Then they are a fascist. And there is just no doubt in my mind that Italians in the 1930s and Germans in the 1930s and Spaniards after World War II, all those who supported even a little bit the relevant figures that they were after, and the same for people who supported Stalin in, in the Soviet Union, they thought in 200 years' time, absolutely everyone must love that person. Mm. There can be no room for public dissent. Mm. If there is any doubt about it, it must be harbored at it'll the back like, of your own it'll mind. It will be like gravity. Yes. It must be a universal law. And I, so I think that's a kind of... So it's not liberal, because I think the liberals, guys, you know, you tell someone that in, in 200 years' time, it turns out Barack Obama is loved by half the country and not loved by half the country. Because... Obamacare didn't work out, but he was a really charismatic leader and he did a bunch of other, you know, he spoke so much to hope and gave people the belief that anyone can become president and so on. I think most Obama fans would be like, okay, I'm a little bit disappointed to hear that it's 50-50 in 200 years, but that's okay. 
Yeah. You know, if people are still debating his legacy, that's even better. Yeah. It's more it's, important that people are still debating a sort of it. Health and vibrancy to the republic and the and the culture of free speech. Yeah. And and likewise, you know, Milton Friedman is probably the most influential economist of the 20th century and one of the most interesting thinkers. And he went hard well, after I would say late 20th century. Of the late exactly yeah. after the war. And he goes after Abraham Lincoln. Because he's like, dude, Abraham Lincoln is the best for, for for fighting the Civil War and ending slavery. That's just the best, best, best. Mm -hmm. But he didn't like some of his economic policies. And he's like, just because Abraham Lincoln was so good at that mm. doesn't mean that I shouldn't be allowed to debate some of the other things. And I think that's because Milton Friedman was a real liberal. Mm. He really thought the debate should never end. If something is important, that means the contest should go on. Yes. And so if you think, no, the debate should end because 90% of the guys should just love the dude and everyone else should shut up and just be ostracized and be left out, then you're a populist. If you think 100% have to love the guy, then you're a totalitarian fascist or communist, depending on yeah. how you fill out the on content. Your, on your flavor. <laughs> and so then that gives you three ways of thinking about a populist. The one is in terms of uh, domestic policy, pro-tariff, anti-immigration. One is in terms of, but not extermination. One is in terms of um, foreign policy, and that is to be big bark, small bite, uh, because you don't want to have costly wars. And the third is in terms of the end goal, as being not an absolute victory, but as like a dominating victory where the debate is kind of ended because everyone comes to love the same person that you do, excepting for weirdos who are allowed to live and go on yeah. and speak freely about their ideas, but who have get no traction or bite in the public square. The great masses, yes. And so that's my definition of populism. Piggybacking off now Ferguson's, but taking it a bit further, thanks to Nicholas's idea of that we need to think about what's the end of history look like for every ideology. And I think that that's a useful box to put Trump in. And I think it's very useful to put him in that box because then you can think about him in the context of other populists that they've been, the Populist Party in America in the 1890s through to the 1920s, the other populists that we were talking about in... Uh. I can't remember what I was saying. It's so... Ah, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, I, I mean, I think you can find populist movements like that uh, in terms of increasing tariffs and opposing immigration and kind of thinking that we've got a, pop, we've got a cult of personality that's got to win out but not totally dominate. Yeah. In Brazil. Mm. In... Um, <laughs> God, I've been talking for so long that I really can't remember the other examples, but it's important. Anyway. Wait, you've been talking for so long? <laughs> I'm going to shut up. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I, will, I will let the listeners know one of my favorite games sometimes to play with uh, when, when Gabriel's been on the podcast is to skip to a random part of the podcast and see whether Gabriel is talking. It's never, it's ne he's never found one. He always skips to when he's talking <laughs> because he's a total narcissist and his finger just knows. You know, that's, that's, I think the lady doth protest too much, Gabriel. Oh, but, no. Okay. But anyway, uh, as fascinating as this is, um, um, I have talked to several of our listeners who complained bitterly when the, when we went over an hour. So okay. let's not subject you to any more of this. Um, although I think we had a interesting fleshing out of our discussion of boxes and ideas. Yeah, four boxes so that you can satisfy the people who don't want the Trumpkins to be in the liberal box, but then without letting them squeeze them into the fascist box, yeah. which is a box that no one wants to open, and then you just lose yeah. a lot of detail and information to what's yeah, going yeah. on. And, and everyone gets a little bit silly. Yes. 
Um, but anyway, so I think I think that's a good discussion. Good place to end it now is that now that we've established our populist box, um, and <sighs> our listeners can decide. And be wary of the populist box. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, we we're liberals. We don't think the populist yeah, box is oh. the greatest box in the world. Um, but it's still something to recognize and uh, think about. Yeah. Um, so thank you everyone for listening. I hope that you enjoyed our show today. Um, if you like what you heard and you want to support the Institute of Race Relations, which pays our salaries. You can well, not mine. I have to make that clear. Oh yeah, not yours, but you know, you know, you but it, mine but at least. <laughs> pay well, pays fifty percent of our salary. Pays for the better half of this show. <laughs> the microphones included. Yes, and the microphones and our wonderful studio. Um, then you can SMS your name to three two eight two three, and one of our agents will call you back uh, and sign you up to become a friend of the institute. Um, thank you very much for listening. And one last thing, to check out if you like the debate between Fariza Zakaria and Nal Ferguson. Yes, yes. Is the liberal world order over in uh, on the internet? The one in Kiev is is better. <laughs> but they're a little bit more shouty. <laughs> That's always a good sign. And the point is that Fariza Zakaria thinks that the scariest thing in the world is Russia, and Nal Ferguson thinks the scariest thing in the world is China. And when the when the Kievans heard that, they were like, "Dude, it's definitely China." It's definitely so China. that's why they agreed. We're being invaded by Russia. Yeah, and we know it's China, and we know that China <laughs> is scarier. So that is, I don't defend Putin or Russia, but that's just the context that uh, yeah. Nick was referring yeah. to earlier, just so that that shoe can drop, <laughs> so that it's not hovering for the next week, like our story about the end of slavery, which, by the way, is what we're going to discuss next week in our Thanksgiving special. Uh, uh, don't make promises like that. Uh, anyway, I'm holding us to it. Uh, thank you, everyone, and have a lovely week.